This is From Our Neurons to Yours, a podcast from the Wu Tsai Neurosciences Institute at Stanford University. On this show, we crisscross scientific disciplines to bring you to the frontiers of brain science. I'm your host, Nicholas Weiler. Quick note, I just want to take a moment to say thanks to everyone who's tuned in to our first season. We're going to take a break for the summer to get ready for next season, but we'll have more tales from the frontiers of brain science for you in the fall. So with that said, here's the sound we created to introduce today's topic, exercise and the brain. We all know exercise has all sorts of benefits beyond just making us stronger and fitter. It lowers inflammation, it buffers stress and anxiety, it clarifies our thinking. In fact, regular exercise is one of the few things we know with reasonable confidence can help extend our healthy lifespan. But for all the evidence of the benefits of exercise, It's a bit surprising we don't know more about how exercise does all these great things for our bodies and our brains. Today's guest, Jonathan Long, recently discovered a new molecule produced when we exercise, a compound called LAC-PHI. LAC-PHI appears to be linked to a number of health benefits, from regulating appetite to boosting learning and memory. Jonathan is an assistant professor of pathology and an institute scholar of Serafan ChemH, the Institute for Chemistry, Engineering, and Medicine for Human Health, our sister institute here at Stanford. I started our conversation by asking Jonathan how his background as a chemist informs how he thinks about studying exercise and human health. Exercise, in a way, is like medicine because it provides a therapeutic benefit that we can measure and see. But unlike a medicine, we don't have a definition of what are the molecules associated with those effects and what about things like pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and adverse effects. Right. Even without molecules, you probably can't prescribe a specific dose of exercise. Exactly right. And so my approach to this whole problem as a chemist is find the molecules first. And once you find the molecules, that will give you a clean entry point to study what is otherwise a very, very complex and poorly defined phenomenon, physical activity. And so we were on the hunt for really robust molecules that were always associated with physical activity across many different modalities of physical activity, across many different types of species. It was unclear, by the way, that such molecules would even be found. Hmm. Because you can imagine that walking around the block is very different than Running hard upstairs is very different than running a marathon is very different than you running and a mouse running and dogs running and horses running. And so to our surprise, we actually found that all animals that move, which include mice that are running on treadmills, which include humans that are running on treadmills, which include dogs running the Iditarod, which is that race across Alaska, which include horses running at Golden Gate Field across the bay, All the animals, when they sprint, they increase in their blood the same molecule. And it tells you that there's some fundamental, very conserved aspect of physical activity that's related to this molecule. So I wanted to dive in on that a little bit. So you wanted to understand, are there different molecules involved in different kinds of exercise? And 
do you see the same thing in different species? So you started with the mice on the treadmills. You were looking for molecules that increased in the blood following exercise. And you basically, you found one, right? You had a, yes. a signal, like there's something here. It was a very clear signal. The top hit across every mouse experiment we ever did, it was the same molecule. And it was that laxity molecule. And so tell me about how you extended this to other animals. How did you go about that? Well, so the, the next one we actually looked at was humans because there's a lot of blood from a lot of people that are in clinical trials being exercised in various ways. One of the most common ways that you can do that is to put people on a treadmill and ask them to keep going until they say stop. That's called a self-limited cardiopulmonary treadmill exercise. And we had blood banked from our colleague, Mike Snyder, from these humans that were on treadmills. And we saw that the LACP molecule was also one of the top hits that was induced after exercise in the humans as well. And then we started to think, well, if we see it in mouse and we see it in humans, maybe we should just look very broadly. And so one of the animal models that I had become very interested in were racehorses. Racehorses have a long history in exercise research. They have a measurement called a VO2. This is a measurement of how much oxygen they take in. And racehorses increase their VO2 by more than any other animal ever recorded, which is 40-fold during a race. So they're wow. sort of a model of extreme exercise. And so then we decided to look at racehorses. It turns out getting blood from racehorses is also surprisingly easy because they're routinely drug tested. Huh. And so all the A samples get sent out to the drug testing lab. The B and C samples came over here to Stanford. We put them on our instruments. We were looking. And lo and behold, the lacking molecule was again the top hit. And as we kept looking across all sorts of different animal models, we looked at rats, we looked at sled dogs that run across Alaska. In all of these cases, LACV is dramatically induced after a single bout of exercise. Okay, so now you have this molecule and LACV, that's a, a combination of lactate and that's the molecule that makes your muscles sore when you exercise. And then phenylalanine, do I have that right? That's a, just a common amino acid, like a building block of proteins? That's right. So the LACV name refers to the two parts of the molecule that sort of compose the entire entity. The molecule is a combination of lactate, which is, as you mentioned, sort of the byproduct of exercise associated with sprinting, and also the very common amino acid, phenylalanine. So you've got this molecule, LACV. I guess the next question is, well, what is this doing? Now we know this is elevated. One of the key things you looked at is its effect on appetite. Why did you focus on appetite? Yeah. So we were thinking sort of very broadly about what LACFI might be doing. Exercise has all these different effects across all sorts of different organ systems. The truth of the matter is that we made a bunch of synthetic LACFI and we were putting it to animals. And then we started to measure all of the different physiologic parameters, looking at various benefits of physical activity. So we were thinking about benefits for weight control, benefits for glucose metabolism and other cardiometabolic traits. And we were looking very broadly. The effect that was most prominent was the effect on feeding behaviors. And what we saw was that if you gave animals laxity, that they would eat less. And we knew that effect was specific because their movement was the same. They would drink the same. And we could do all sorts of other tests to tell that it was very selective in terms of the suppression of appetite without basically any other effects generally in metabolism. So this is kind of counterintuitive in a way because we sort of usually think of there being sort of an energy balance, calories in, calories out. And so 
in a way, you'd expect that exercise would make you eat more, right? Because you're using more energy, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the effect of exercise on your appetite is extremely complicated, depending on the type of exercise, the duration of exercise, and many other factors. And there's no doubt that there's many such exercise-regulated hormones that regulate your feeding behaviors. But with LACFI, the way that I think sort of evolutionarily we think about it is that LACFI is highest after a single bout of sprint exercise when levels of lactate are also highest. That's like high-intensity interval training or running stadium stairs. And so we think that LACFI is associated with the appetite suppression that you get after a really, really hard workout. And then evolutionarily, the way that we think about that kind of sprint exercise is that before there was modern society, you would be sprinting away from predators that want to eat you. And what you think about in that context is the autonomic nervous system response where you want to shut down digestion so you can fuel your muscles, so you can run away. And so we think that the lactate molecule plays into that type of system where it's a parallel chemical signaling system to your autonomic nervous system to help you in ancient days flee away from predators and nowadays, it's sort of associated with the feeling bad after high-intensity interval training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your trainer is your predator, maybe. Um, um, okay, no, that makes sense. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, doing a long hike or a bike ride or something like that. And I usually come back and eat maybe unwise numbers of calories after yes. that. But I'm clearly just not going hard enough. So one of the things I thought was interesting, I mean, you saw a bunch of health benefits. Do I have this right? You found that if animals don't have lack fee, then even really intense exercise does lead them to overeat and gain weight. That's exactly right. So what we can do is we can genetically engineer mice so they can't produce lacfi. And in those genetically engineered mice, instead of having this lacfi break to stop you from eating after an intense workout, they don't have that break anymore. So they continue to eat and they're hyperphagic and they get obese after exercise training. And so that's really, I would argue, the strongest evidence that we have that this lacfi molecule really is involved in the suppression of appetite after a hard workout. Mm. So you see lacfi elevated in many different animals after exercise, and we were just getting into talking about what happens if you don't have it. But I wonder if you could just briefly mention, like, what were the health benefits that you see associated with lacfi in these animals? Yeah. So. Our lab, in the the initial discovery of LACFI, has mostly focused on the energy balance aspects, on the appetite control, on the body weight effects. But we are now starting to ask broader questions about, might LACFI be doing other things related to the salutary effects of physical activity? One area where we've looked, and one area that's been very interesting, is just generally in the brain. We know that LACFI is acting in the brain because that's where your appetite control is being regulated. And now we're looking very broadly at other areas of the brain to see if lactate is also activating any other regions, for example, related to anxiety, depression, sleep, and those other types of behaviors and aspects that are associated with the health benefits of exercise. And what we're starting to see in very, very early studies that are ongoing now is that lactate does seem to activate other pathways in the brain beyond just feeding control alone. For example, the mice that can't produce laxity also have reduced learning and memory. Mm. 
And that's quite interesting. We have different assays for learning and memory, including, for example, a water maze where mice try to find a little platform in the water. And what the animals that can't produce lack feed seem to do is that they seem to have more difficulty finding the platform. That suggests that in addition to appetite control, LACT-V as an exercise-inducible molecule might be mediating other health benefits, especially associated with brain health. And that's an active area that we're trying to understand right now. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. So your group has recently received support from the Knight Initiative for Brain Resilience here at Neuro to look into whether LACT-V as a molecular mediator of exercise could help enhance healthy brain aging, reduce the risk of neurodegeneration. I mean, this is such a fascinating line of research. There's sort of this temptation to think of this as like, oh, maybe we could make a drug that means I don't have to go work out, right? I'll get all the benefits of exercise. I'll stay thin. I'll have a long-lasting, healthy life. You know, I think listeners are probably rightly cynical because we've heard about miracle molecules before. Sometimes things pan out, often they don't. What to you makes this different? So I agree and share the concerns of your listeners here. This is a complicated area where we are approaching it cautiously and from just the basic scientific principles, chemical principles, and trying to understand the system. What is exciting for me is the fact that this metabolite lactate is so well conserved across the entire animal kingdom. Hmm. Anything that moves turns on lactate. That tells you that somehow nature and evolution has built this in in a very, very fundamental way. And what that exactly means in terms of the basic science or in terms of translation to new medicines, I don't yet know. But it tells you there's something very, very deep. You know, it's just to give you sort of a a sense of this. I mean, it's very rare, and I've never had it happen to me before as a basic scientist, where you do different experiments, a mouse running, a human running, a horse running, and God comes back and hands you the same answer. And when that happens, you got to listen. Right. And my sort of attitude of the whole thing, which is whatever it is, it's fundamentally tied to movement in animals. It's fundamentally tied to a key metabolite lactate. And it's fundamentally tied to the brain signaling and behavior. And how that knowledge then might be translated to clinical practice or to new medicines, that's still many, many years away. Yeah, I really love the way that you put that. And, you know, we have to follow the clues that nature or God drop on our trail and see where they lead. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying that as like someone who's not very religious, okay? But the feeling of seeing different experiments give you the same answer it feels like you're looking at God's hands. That's how it feels. When you see that, then you feel like, okay, I just got to follow the science here. I share that caution that you raised. And at the same time, I'm trying to balance that caution with like just the remarkable finding that nature has revealed to us. Well, that's beautiful. So one of the things I find so fascinating about this is that people have been studying exercise for a long time. Why was this discovered now? I mean, why hadn't this been found before? This is a great question. And I can tell you it's because no chemists have looked at this problem. So there's many molecules in our bodies. We know that. They're in textbooks. And those are all the standard molecules. But there's something that's changed in the last 10 years, which is a technology called mass spectrometry. 
And mass spectrometry allows you to measure all the molecules in your body, whether you know about them or not. Hmm. And what we have learned is that there's many, many molecules in our bodies that are not in the textbooks. Hmm. Probably upwards of like 80% are not in the textbooks. Wow. Okay. And most scientists then just ignore that 80% because it's chemically hard to figure out what is it. Let's just focus on the ones that we know about. When we did the experiments, what we did differently was instead of just focusing on that 20% of molecules that you know about, we opened up our mass specs to look at everything in a totally unbiased way. And what happened then was that LACV is showing up in that 80% of data that everyone else is ignoring because they can't figure it out. The challenge for us, of course, in working with that 8% of poorly studied molecules is that it becomes very challenging to try to figure out what is it that you're actually detecting. But we're chemists, so we can make molecules, we can work with molecules, and we can actually figure that out. But it does take some expertise in chemistry to be able to do that. I would say that most people who have been interested in approach the problem of physical activity and the salutary effects of physical activity have not been trained in like very, very serious organic chemistry. I just happen to have that training and I happen to also have this interest in physical activity. So it's a very unusual combination of interest and expertise from two very different domains. And then the other thing that I wanted to ask was, we've talked a lot about the molecules and we've talked about sort of the benefits of exercise for the body, but can you take us into the brain as you are approaching these questions about why exercise is so good for the brain, why it could potentially lead to healthier brain aging? What are you looking at? Yeah, you know, the brain and exercise is a fascinating question. There are very, very few modifiable interventions to improve your brain health. One of them is exercise. First of all, a very fascinating observation that you can't do much because your brain's in here and it's complicated, but you can move and somehow that helps things up here. Hmm. And that, that's a, just a very strange kind of idea when you start to think about that. Right. How do your muscles affect your brain? How does your exactly. cardiovascular rate affect your brain? Yes. Exactly right. And as you think about sort of decline of brain health with aging, you think about, for instance, cognitive impairment, you think about neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's diseases. We are thinking about all of those different types of processes now because we have a specific molecule to study. We can approach the problem cleanly from a chemical perspective. We can ask now, what is the effect of laxity in these different types of experiments. So for example, one of the things that we're trying to do, as I alluded to earlier, is we're trying to understand the effect of LACV as a clean entry point in learning and memory. And we can do that because we can directly introduce LACV to animals, or we can use those animals that don't have LACV and ask, do they have any behavioral differences in learning and memory or cognition, which are, of course, the three domains most severely affected in Alzheimer's disease. And in preliminary studies, we are seeing beneficial effects there, and that's very positive, and we're continuing to follow that up. In other studies, we're looking at, for example, aggression. So people who, for example, have dementia and Alzheimer's disease, they also tend to have more aggression. And that's an interesting observation. And we can now ask the question, again, using a clean entry point of LACV, rather than some complex physical activity prohibition, does LACV modulate aggression and other neuropsychiatric behaviors associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we're starting to see, for example, that LACV can also seem to modulate and reduce aggression in certain animal models. 
we're also doing the standard models with Alzheimer's disease and the development of neurodegenerative phenotypes there. And we're continuing to, to study that now more broadly in the brain. Fantastic. All right. And I'll just do one final question. You know, taking a step back, we get so much advice about what to eat and how we should be exercising more. And, you know, it's hard, right? I think we all struggle with this, some of us more than others, you know, how to get enough exercise, how to eat right, and so on. I know I do. How can understanding the mechanisms of how exercise affects the body and the brain help us just make better decisions or live healthier lives? I mean, does this give you personal insight about the value of exercise and health? I think that any exercise is always going to be better than not moving. You know, and all of the regular advice that you get from, for example, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, that you should be moving 150 minutes a week, that you should potentially add strength training twice a week. That's what I follow. What our work highlights is that maybe as you're doing some high intensity training, some of the effects that are going on in your body associated with that high intensity interval training might be just different than taking a walk around the block or other forms of activity. From a practical point of view, you know, that doesn't change what I do. I'm still on the elliptical in the morning at the gym and just following the CDC guidelines. But it's sort of interesting to think that maybe a diversity of different types of exercise could be good for you because the different types of exercise might be providing different molecules and affecting different systems in slightly different ways. And just like you want a varied diet, maybe you also want varied physical activity too. That's very helpful. Yeah. And just the fact that when you exercise, you're not just strengthening your body, you're doing all kinds of other favors for yourself too. Well, I could keep talking about this all day. I'd love to hear how this is going as the results come in from your new experiments. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very happy to do this. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much again to our guest, Jonathan Long. For more info about his work, check out the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Michael Osborne with production assistance by Morgan Honecker. I'm Nicholas Weiler. Stay tuned to this feed. We'll be back soon.